0: Welcome to the Left Right Forward Show, Business and Political Solutions with Ambassador Delano Lewis. Welcome back. This is the Left Right Forward Show with Business and Political Solutions, and I am Ambassador Delano Lewis. We really are going to talk about issues today that are relevant and current. And speaking about issues, today is June 19th, 2019, and it's called June 10th Day. And there are some celebrations going on around the country, some 45 states, because in June 19th and 1865, the enslaved people, and Texans particularly, uh, just found out about the Emancipation Proclamation that was issued in 1863. Two years later, they found out the free, slaves were freed. So it's a big day, big celebration day, and it's been called Juneteenth
1: Day. So that's uh, news not news not traveling too fast.
0: That's you got it right. And the guy that's speaking on the other end is my guest who knows a lot about news. He's the former publisher of the Washington Post. And I want to welcome Don Graham once again to our podcast. Welcome, Don.
1: Thank you so much, Dale.
0: Yes, I I as I said, we are now really want to focus in on issues and topics left right forward and hopefully we'll come with some solutions. And I'm just excited again to have Don Graham on the podcast because I want him to recap from the first episode that we did about his family. Because his grandfather purchased the Washington Post at a bankruptcy sale, if I remember the first interview. And his family ran the paper for a number of years uh, by his father running the paper and his mother, Catherine Graham, being the chairman, and Don was very much involved all those years. So I wanted Don to at least recap that for our listeners about the Washington Post, because we're going to talk about the role of the free press, and we're going to talk about the constitutional crisis that's confronting this country, the standoff between the executive and the legislative. And who better to do that but a former newsman, who I'm sure is still into the news, uh, Don Graham. So Don, just give us a little sense of the background of you and the paper.
1: Well... Dell, uh, I should admit to the audience that Dell and I are friends of maybe 50 years standing. And, you're telling our age. Yeah. And he lived here in Washington and was one of the ablest uh, people in the city, a senior business executive who also had a tremendous civic commitment. Thank and you. And we worked together on civic issues for many years. So uh, you were asking about my family and the Washington Post. Yes, sir. My grandfather was a man named Eugene Meyer, son of a French immigrant uh, who bought uh, the Washington Post newspaper at a bankruptcy sale in June of 1933. The Post wasn't much to buy at that point. It was the fourth newspaper in a five-newspaper town. Mm. It claimed the circulation of 50,000, probably didn't have that much had a rundown building on Pennsylvania Avenue that uh, I visited as a little boy. That was It was an old rattletrap building with uh, uh, ceilings that sometimes fell in. My mother tells some stories about that in her autobiography, Personal History. Right. But my grandfather had uh, made a lot of money on Wall Street back around the turn of the century. Come to Washington, he was French, his family was French. And he came to Washington when we got into World War One to volunteer. He was too old to be in the Army. He was 40 or 45. Mm-hmm. But he volunteered to work for President Wilson on organizing American business to help the war effort. Did that. Stayed in Washington. Was in some senior financial jobs in the government. Actually was on the Federal Reserve Board at the end of the 20s, the early 30s. Fantastic. When he left in 1933, he made the breathtaking gamble to buy the Washington Post at a time when he was 57, wow. and never worked on a newspaper, and had never run a business. So that was a pretty good trifecta. That's incredible. incredible. Uh, yeah. I talked to a guy who worked for him as a consultant at the time who said, your grandfather believed that uh, if... He made the paper better. That would increase readership a little bit. Advertising would grow, and maybe he would break even in three years. <laughs> he was right. He was right on the formula, wrong on the timing. It took him twenty-one years to stop losing money on the paper. Lost an average of a billion dollars a year, nineteen thirty-three to fifty-four dollars. Wow. And uh, yeah, so uh, after World War II. Uh, he brought into the company my father, Philip Graham, who had mm-hmm. married his daughter, Kay. Uh, Phil Graham had been in the Army in the Pacific in World War II, uh, was a Harvard Law School graduate, and uh, uh, he had expected to go back to his native Florida and go into politics. Instead, he stayed, became publisher of The Post, Uh bought the competing morning paper, the Times-Herald, which was losing even more money than we were. Right. And uh, the Post then became the largest paper in Washington in circulation, although not for six more years in advertising. Incredible. My dad, was, my dad was a brilliant man, but mentally ill. Right. And in 1963, suffering from manic depressive illness, for which at that time there was no treatment, mm-hmm. uh, he took his own life. And uh, my mother, uh, in 1963, which Dell and I are old enough to remember, but most of the listeners are not. So uh, in 1963, no women executives were running much of anything. There were a few. Absolutely right. But, uh, for example, in the biggest 500 businesses in the United States at that time, none was being run by a woman. So Catherine Graham had to make a very brave decision, with very strong backing from her four children, who didn't know a damn thing, but were generally <laughs> uh, supporting and encouraging to her. Yeah. So we, she had to either sell the paper or go to work and try to run it, and she bravely opted to try to run it. Became, I believe, at one time, Dell the only woman. CEO of a Fortune One Thousand company, so nine hundred ninety nine wow. guys in her, and you do it pretty well. I sure did, and uh, yeah, and uh, uh, she uh, did a she did an absolutely amazing job for the ensuing thirty years.
0: Well, she certainly and, did.
1: Uh, Yeah. So that uh, brings us up to the story you wanted to talk about, which is Watergate.
0: Absolutely right. Uh, uh, Incredible background. And thanks, Don, because I wanted our listeners to hear that. You mentioned 1963. That was the year that I came to Washington to work for the Department of Justice as a lawyer out of Kansas and spent time in the government and then worked for the telephone company. And that's when Don and I did business Uh, activities together. But one piece of this that I think is important that Don talked about his family, and he obviously grew up in the paper, uh, and the paper was a part of his family. But Don uh, knew that he was going to probably be involved in the paper, but he wanted to do some other things. And he went off to the military. He came back. He worked as a police officer uh, in D.C., Washington, D.C. So he had a sense of people, had a sense of 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 events uh, before he became full-time as a reporter and uh, doing other things at the Washington Post. So uh, I've always admired Don's uh, career path because he's been a man of the people. Uh, I, the story's been told, Don, that uh, when you walked around the Post, uh, you knew the names of almost every employee that you encountered in the hallways and on the elevator. And uh, that's the kind, well, thank of, you, kind you, of leader that you are. I,
1: I should say that going into the Army was not my idea. I got drafted <laughs> like so many other people in that right. day. So it was not a, not a, but, uh, I was, uh, in the military did every year and a half on the DC police and both were critical to my own education.
0: Oh, it was incredible. But, uh, one of the things that I talked to Don about, I said, Don, I'd like to go back and recap because Catherine Graham was so strong and, uh, in her, uh, her leadership at the post, uh, from the Pentagon Papers to the whole Watergate issue, and I, I wanted Don to have, I wanted to have some conversation about it because we chatted last time in the first episode with Don about the uh, the movie uh, The Post, and uh, which I think highlighted to people the strong-willed leadership of Catherine Graham uh, in, in in the whole Watergate. Because I think Watergate, uh, if you just read anything today has so many similarities to what we're confronting today, so just give us a little recap of that,
1: Don Sure, well, I'm glad to, Dell. I don't know about the similarities, but here's the story of Watergate <laughs> and I realized I realized that uh an awful lot of people listening uh, to you uh, have no knowledge of Watergate don't remember anything that uh, any part of it. But to those our age, it is the evolution of it all was vivid. So, yes. in June 17, nineteen seventy-two, uh, a uh, security guard in the Watergate office building in Washington D.C. Uh, noticed that the door of one of the uh, uh, the do- a door in the stairwell uh, had been taped open. The lock had been uh, defeated by, uh, by taping the latch on the door with strong tape mm-hmm. and uh, he called the police and said that he was going to look for burglars inside the building uh, he did look he found that there was a burglary in progress in what was in an in an office in that building that was in fact the headquarters of the National Committee of the Democratic Party mm-hmm Again, the month was June. The year was 1972, so there was a presidential election in progress. Exactly. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and uh, and uh, the uh, president running for re-election was Richard Nixon, uh, and Nixon was far ahead. Of any of the then candidates, uh, but for whatever reason, these burglars were found inside the building. They were not uh, typical burglars. They were grown-up <laughs> men, grown-up men, well dressed. Quite a few of them Cubans from Miami. Mm-hmm. Again. Not who you'd find, uh, not who you'd expect to find committing a burglary in Washington, D.C. Right. Because, because, uh, and uh, one of them, a man named James McCord, uh, had a record of employment with the Central Intelligence Agency. Uh, That was enough to make the story very interesting, not just to the Washington Post, but certainly to the newspaper where I was then a, uh, a young—I'd uh, I started at the Post a year and a half earlier. Right. But what I want to what I want to stress to you and to your readers, I was uh, with Catherine Graham, my mother, and then the publisher of the Post. The morning when the managing editor of the Post called her. And told her about the Watergate burglary, mm-hmm. uh, told her that there had been such a burglary, told, uh, told her that the burglars had been found, uh, who they, you know, what types of people they were. And uh, I will tell you to a certainty that neither the managing editor, nor my mother, nor the reporters who wrote the story, nor anybody at the Washington Post Remotely suspected that this case would have anything like the consequences it did. I understand. So that's exactly right. Yeah. So what I want to stress to your readers is that the story of the case evolved very, very slowly. A uh, a man the long-time night police reporter at the Post, a man named Gene Baczynski, Hmm. uh, uh, was well enough connected at police headquarters that the police showed him the address book of McCord, one of the Watergate burglars. And in that address book was the telephone number of a man named Howard Hunt, mm-hmm. the telephone number began four five six something something something, right. and everybody in Washington knew that that was a, that that was quite likely to be a White, White House, House number. number. The, exactly, yeah. So, <laughs> uh, so Baczynski, uh, uh, told the city editor of the Post, who passed on this information to a reporter named Carl Burns. Right. Uh, Carl, uh, Carl and I had done a lot of stories together. Carl was a veteran post reporter in his early thirties, but he'd been there for some years and he found, uh, he, he did the obvious. He called, uh, the number. The secretary answered and said, Mr. Hunt's office. <laughs> and, uh, Carl said, this is Carl Bursting from the Washington Post. Can I speak to Mr. Hunt? And the, and the person answering the phone said, "Well, he's not here just at the moment. He's let me see. I think he's in Mr. Colson's office." Oh. And Charles Colson was one of Richard Nixon's closest aides. Right. And uh, Carl said, "That's fine. There's no particular rush. Could he call me when he gets back to the office?" He called Carl, and Carl said to him, "Mr. Hunt." How did it happen that your name turned up in the address book of a man named James McCord who's one of the five people arrested in this burglary at the Watergate office building? <laughs> Howard Hunt said, Howard Hunt said, oh shit, and hung up the phone. <laughs> and oh. so that was ground zero. That was, that was the beginning one. Mm-hmm. That was the first tiny scrap of information that anybody had that this was something other than a routine burglary, that that it had a tiny connection to a a total, no one had heard Howard Hunt's name before, I promise you. Right. Uh, But it had a tiny connection to a little-known person at the White House. Um, (laughs) And uh, so uh, the uh, Metro editor of the Post, Harry Rosenfeld, saw that, this story had something to it. He asked Carl to continue to work on it, and he asked Bob Woodward to join him. Now, Bob was, I think, 29. Right. And, uh, no, maybe not that old. <laughs> and he uh, he was uh, new at the Post, but known to be extremely promising. Mm-hmm. Bob had worked, Bob had gone to college, then gone into the military, and been an officer in Navy intelligence, and uh, came out of there with a very strong desire to be a newspaper reporter.
2: Wow. And had,
1: uh, had uh, just been knocking down doors at the Post to try to get a job, wound up at a little county paper in Montgomery County, and did such a fabulous job, was beating the Post reporters in Montgomery County, this stories and worked his way to a job on the post. And as soon as he got there, got a reputation for working harder and getting more stories than anybody else. So he mm-hmm. was a very natural person to square to pair with Bernstein. But what I want to point out to you, Ambassador Del Lewis, and to those listening, right. was this was, okay, there had been a felony of burglary. Mm-hmm. And burglars, you know, I, as you said to me, I'd been a cop, uh, uh three <laughs> years earlier Right. and I'd arrested burglars and I knew what happened to burglars. They went to jail and those, you know, typically, a uh, a burglar in Washington would go to jail for three or four years. Right. So this was a felony. This was a serious criminal offense that somehow seemed to have some, uh, some connections to the United States government, unknown how much, unknown why, mm-hmm. but that was all we knew. Uh, and the uh, this why did the story go on from there? Why did it get to be so big? I think the simple answer to that question is Woodward and Bernstein, the two of them. In something that was possible in that day but isn't now, they were writing stories, and they quickly got ahead of their competitors on other newspapers. Mm -hmm. They had sources that those competitors didn't Didn't have. have. For example, uh, one of the burglars, it turned out, had some $100 bills in his wallet at the time he was arrested. And they were able to find that those $100 bills had been donated to the Nixon re-election campaign in wow. Florida, and to call up the fellow to whom they were donated. Other newspapers were not uh, matching this story. And again, not Woodward, not Bernstein, not the editor of the Post, not Kate Graham, not anybody had a clue that this case was going to connect to the top people in the White House and ultimately to the President of the United States. Not that he is thought to have known about the Watergate burglary in advance, but that he is thought to have known about it the next day and apparently, judging by evidence on the tapes, to set about covering it up.
0: Yeah, this is the thing that began to happen. You're right. Uh, things began to unfold uh, that went directly to the chief executive uh, at the White House. And you mentioned sources of of uh, Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein. And uh, one source was called Deep Throat. And that person, we found out many years later, had been an FBI worker uh, high up in the FBI. And that was the source of a lot of the information that... Uh, Carl and Bob were receiving. So you talk about Well, he wasn't
1: uh, actually, Deep Throat was not a former FBI official. He was. He was then (laughs) the the assistant director of the FBI, a man named Mark Felt. Exactly. That was a deep, dark secret for 50 years. Right. But as Mr. Felt was uh, mortally ill, his family announced that to the world. And then Bob and Carl wrote a book about it, describing their interactions. His uh, importance was great, but you could say secondary. What he did often was to confirm things that Woodward and Bernstein had learned from other sources, and then also to steer them to, uh, to suggest areas that it might be fruitful to inquire in. This is all described in great detail in Bob and Carl's first book, right. All the President's Men. But, you know, uh, Adele, the Post and Woodward and Bernstein were very important to the Watergate case, but were far from alone. Right. The, uh, uh, I mentioned the date of the initial burglary, June 17th, 1972. It was more than six months later that, uh the district judge handling the case of the Watergate burglary the chief judge of the US district court of man named John Sirica right uh, really really pushed the burglars to tell him what had been going on what had happened why why uh, had they committed this burglary and why were they being uh, Uh, So silent. Why were they not telling anybody what had happened? And Judge Sirica. Was a crucial actor in this case. uh, Because of. What he. Because of. What he asked. Of uh, the Watergate burglars. James McCord. A fellow who had worked in the CIA. Mm -hmm. uh, Uh. Confessed in, uh, said in his courtroom six months later, that uh, they had been acting at the behest of the committee to reelect the certain people in the committee to reelect the president. And then uh, a Senate committee chaired by a senator from North Carolina named Sam Irvin, uh, but both the Republicans and the Democrats on that committee. Set about questioning witnesses and learning all they could about the facts of the Watergate burglary. And there, uh, from a great deal flowed from what Judge Sirica did, a great deal flowed from what the Senate Watergate Committee did, in addition to the work of the Washington Post.
0: That's very, very, very true, Don. And you mentioned several things. The reason why I started this discussion with the fact that there were similarities possibly uh, with what's going on today, when you use such words as cover-up. And Nancy Pelosi has been using that word in relationship to what's going on with President Trump and the uh, Russian interference and the possible obstruction of justice. And uh, something is being covered up. And another similarity, as we haven't talked about, is the White House counsel, uh, John Dean, uh, who really began to speak publicly about what was going on inside the White House, and um uh, then you had the Saturday night massacre um, uh, with uh, the attorney general uh, Elliot Richardson resigning. Lots of other things were happening, uh so there was some cover up issues here, and that's where I meant by this by the similarities and with the tapes with the tapes, which we don't have a smoking gun here at this point, but the tapes really began to be the, the evidence that uh, was very clear that it went all the way up to the chief executive.
1: Well, yes, Del, you've touched on several points of the way this investigation evolved. Right. And you know those points very well. Well, uh, the uh, uh, it questioning by the Senate Watergate Committee, uh, first of all, after a while, uh as uh, John Dean his his White House lawyer, and some of his top aides, including his chief of staff Robert Haldeman and his domestic advisor John Ehrlichman, were to a greater lesser extent implicated in uh, the uh, in the in, in the cover-up of Watergate in exactly. trying to deflect Investigative attention from the burglary and the burglars. Uh, President Nixon himself appointed a special prosecutor, a man named Archibald Cox, uh, who had at one time been the Solicitor General of the United States under John Kennedy. Mm -hmm. And Cox set to work pursuing a criminal investigation, not entirely as Robert Mueller did. But you know, with the same title, uh, exactly. actually not. He was called special prosecutor; Muller was called special
0: counsel. So, right. But
1: but uh, when you talk about the Saturday Night Massacre, what happened was uh, Cox was uh, subpoenaing people, demanding witnesses, and among other things, uh, asking the President of the United States to produce these tapes. The Senate Watergate Committee had asked. One of President Nixon's aides, uh, has the president ever recorded conversations in the White House? And that aide said, yes, he has. They questioned him, and it turned out there was a taping system which taped in certain rooms of the White House, not all, uh, most of Nixon's conversations, telephone calls.
0: And I can remember his his surname was Butterfield, right? I can't remember the first name.
1: Alexander Butterfield, he was Nixon's deputy chief of staff. Right, and so they uh, they uh, now that they knew of the existence of the tapes, the Watergate Committee asked for those tapes, and so did the special prosecutor. Right, and President Nixon decided that he did not want to produce those tapes, refused to produce them, felt that to produce them would impair his ability to be president uh, and offered several compromises including producing a uh, an expurgated version of the tapes with what he regarded as national security information deleted. Mm -hmm. but the tapes uh, and the question of whether the president had to produce those tapes went all the way to the supreme court of the united states which ultimately voted nine to nothing, that yes, the president did have to produce those tapes. But that, I'm getting a little ahead of the story here because- That's okay. uh, uh, Because uh, Archibald Cox, the special prosecutor, uh, uh, was pushing very, very hard for the president to surrender those tapes and pushing on other fronts as well. And President Nixon, on one uh, one Saturday in September, ordered the Attorney General of the United States to fire Cox, the, the special prosecutor. The Attorney General refused to fire Cox and uh, said that he would resign if ordered to, so he resigned. Right. The Deputy Attorney General, William Ruckelshaus, was then ordered to fire Cox, refused, and resigned. Exactly. Uh, the number three official in the Justice Department was the solicitor general, who was of all people Robert Bork, later a nominee for the Supreme, Supreme Court. Court, right? And Bork said, uh, "I'm not going to say whether I think the president is right to order the firing of Cox, but I think the uh, I will go ahead and fire him simply to bring this process to an end and see to it that the president's order is enforced."
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So he ultimately did. He fired Cox, and the outcry uh, over that firing and over the fact that the top two people in the Justice Department had refused to do it led the president to turn around again and appoint a different special prosecutor, a man named Leon Jaworski, who took over from Cox, right, uh, and who turned out to be just as tough.
0: It's incredible. Uh, You can see the similarities here, but the thing that I want to stress, Don, is excellent. Uh, We're talking to Don Graham, former publisher of the Washington Post, and we talked about the Watergate and what the possibility lessons we might be learning from what's happening today. And one of the things I want to stress with the listeners and with you, Don, I think you would agree that if there's one thing that I think citizens would like to know is the truth. And I think if you keep that in mind and listening to you talk very clearly about what was happening with Watergate, we had a Senate committee that was appointed trying to get at the truth. Well, we don't have such a committee today, but we have a Congress that is certainly looking, particularly the House uh, of Representatives under Speaker Pelosi, looking to find the truth in the situation of uh, the Trump administration and the Russian interference and the possible obstruction of justice, and the what does a Mueller report really mean after two years of investigation. So what's the truth? Now, my, my view here is uh, this has all been sort of at a standoff um, at this juncture. We're talking June 19th, 2019, and we don't have witnesses coming up before the public giving us one side or the other as to what's going on with that Mueller report and what was found and what were the issues um, and I think if I would put in my two cents, I think uh, we should have some way to get at the truth. That's what Watergate was about, and we did finally get to the truth. What's your reaction to that analysis?
1: Well, Dell, I'm I consider myself an amateur expert on Watergate. I wasn't <laughs> uh, I wasn't involved in the daily coverage. I was growing up as a manager at The Washington Post, but I wasn't uh, uh, involved in any way in the pursuit of the Watergate story. I want to make that clear. Mm-hmm. But I, I read every word we wrote about it. I read both of Bob and Carl's books about Watergate, all three of Bob and Carl's books about Watergate. And uh, I, uh, I know a fair amount about it. You sure do. I am no I am no expert. On the situation today. I am no longer the publisher of the Post. I'm no longer in the newspaper business, as you know. Mm-hmm. And I was, uh, uh, we haven't, our family hasn't owned the Washington Post since the
2: 2013.
1: But uh, here, there are, uh, the, as you point out, some similarities, including the appointment of a special counsel, special in the case of Nixon's special prosecutor, to investigate this story. But uh, the, uh, there is a fundamental difference, which is that Watergate began with a crime, mm-hmm. an obvious, no doubt about it, crime. A burglary, not the only burglary committed in Washington that <laughs> night in June, but a, a crime of a kind that the D.C. police were investigating every day. They were catching burglars on many days. They were bringing them to court on many days, and they were getting and people were being sentenced to years in jail. If as was often the case, it wasn't their first offense, uh-huh. um, you know. Or uh, so. So Watergate started with a crime, and then expanded to the cover-up of that crime, to the uh, apparent, att- you know. What Judge has said in his courtroom was, it doesn't seem to me the United States government is very zealous in trying to find out uh, why this burglary was committed, who whether somebody paid these men, why they, you know, why somebody wanted to break into the Democratic National Committee. Now, uh, in both cases, in the case of Watergate, Archibald Cox, and then Leon Jaworski, in the case of in in this case, uh, Robert Mueller uh, were among the most distinguished people in their field in the United States. Correct. Mueller yeah. had been the director of the FBI. Was a uh, was a uh, uh, a Republican, uh, a veteran, yes. a uh, Marine, former uh, Marine, and a yeah, and a man of known outstanding integrity. Uh, Mueller. Uh, gave his report which said he found no evidence that he was asked to investigate uh, Russian interference in the election of 2016 and whether the Trump campaign was in any way responsible for that or complicit in it. He investigated that and came back and said the answer was no as far as prosecuting such a case. He then said... uh, he was asked to look at whether there might have been obstruction of justice, and he said he was unable to come to the conclusion that he, or that, he would have, that he would have brought such a case or that he wouldn't have. That, uh,
0: that's a piece I would—go ahead. I won't interrupt you. I have a comment on that
1: one. Keep going. Yeah, yeah and he—and I have read a good deal of his report. I have not read all, but I've read a lot of it. And— Uh, Anybody deeply interested in this story, in this case, should go ahead and do that. He piles up evidence, not all of it pointing in the same direction, about uh, uh, what happened during the campaign, what various officials did through the campaign, but it, uh, it differs from Watergate in that it wasn't. An investigation of a of of a, a single crime. Uh, the question was: Was there a crime? Mm-hmm. And the conclusion that uh, Mueller came to was: Well, there certainly was large scale uh, uh, attempts by the Russian military to interfere with the election in the United States. And Mueller brought charges against many people in the Russian military for violating our laws. None of those people will ever be tried in all likelihood.
0: Like some 14 people, I think, were indicted. Let let, let me pick up on your point just for a minute for our listeners. We're talking to Don Graham, former publisher of the Washington Post, and we have gone from the Watergate uh, uh, issues to our present issues uh, uh, involving uh, Robert Mueller and the Mueller Report. And Don's Don's uh, talking about uh, Watergate started with a crime And that was a burglary In this case, uh, from what I read And I've read most of the report as well That um, Mueller said he didn't have enough evidence To come to a criminal conspiracy That the Trump administration uh, uh, Was conspiring on the interference piece On the obstruction of justice Uh, There's two things on this one. When I heard uh, the Attorney General William Barr give a summary, uh, I really felt he did mislead the public because he specifically said that Bob Mueller didn't come to any conclusion uh, irrespective of the legal counsel opinion. And when Mueller came back and wrote him a letter and saying you didn't really characterize what my report stood for, And he made it clear, I think, in his press conference. And if you read the report, he makes it clear again that the legal counsel opinion, which says you cannot indict a sitting president, was the reason uh, that he did not pursue an indictment of the president. Now, he said that he, uh, on the obstruction piece, he said um, that he laid out at least ten or twelve instances where there may be possible um uh obstruction of justice, but he said that if I had found that the president uh uh did not uh commit a crime um uh how did he put it? He put it in the negative if if, if I had found that he had committed a crime, i would have uh, uh didn't commit a crime, I would say so, so he put it in a negative, but he basically said that on the, uh, the, the fact that uh, the, the legal counsel opinion was such uh, that uh, it was not, he chose not to make a decision uh, because it wasn't fair to the president uh, given this legal counsel opinion. So the question I have for you, even though you're no longer running the post and our listeners are also grappling with these issues as citizens, what if there was not um, the legal counsel opinion uh, saying that a sitting president could not be indicted, based on the Mueller report that you have read, and based on what I have read, and based what's what's redacted there, would you think Mueller would have indicted the president?
1: I don't know, and I don't think uh, I don't think uh, anybody knows. I think you know, Dell. Uh, uh, when I was a police officer, and I had arrested someone the night before, I had to. Uh, write a report saying why I arrested the person Mm -hmm. and bring it to a prosecutor. That prosecutor saw a lot of reports and reviewed a lot of arrests and did not prosecute them. He he often said, uh, this person, you, you made a legitimate arrest. That person deserves to be locked up. But either he said, the evidence isn't quite convincing to me or... The evidence is completely convincing to me, but I've been in front of a lot of juries, and I'm not sure we're going to get a conviction here. Mm-hmm. So, if, if if Mueller were in fact a prosecutor here, he would have to say to himself, "Is it worth it? Uh, well, was well, a crime co- was a crime committed? How important was it?" Well, was let, it, me, uh, let me let me
0: let me just answer this, Donna. Two things here. One is on the criminal conspiracy, and he did say he did not have an evidence, enough evidence. So was there, was there a conspiracy uh, between the Trump administration uh, on the interference question? He said, I didn't have enough evidence, so therefore right. I would not recommend uh, uh, right. any, pro- any crime in this regard. On the obstruction of justice, he said, in my judgment, it was the legal counsel's opinion which said a sitting president cannot be indicted. So he felt it was not his place. As a special well, prosecutor, you're, you're going
1: you're going just half a step beyond what the Mueller report says.
2: All right,
1: he does say he does call attention to the opinion of the Justice Department's Office of Legal Counsel. Yes, that a sitting president cannot be indicted, but he doesn't say as as you were saying. Absent that legal counsel opinion, no, he doesn't. I would go ahead and indict the <laughs> no, president. No, he doesn't. He does doesn't. not. He doesn't. And but, but, one, one, And here's, let, me, let me point out another difference, and not, not a subtle one, right. between uh, the Watergate story, the Watergate investigation, and today. And uh, I, uh, I am taking a very unusual position on... Uh, the question of the Mueller report and President Trump. And my position is, I don't know. Right. I don't have enough information to know mm-hmm. uh, whether a crime was committed of obstruction of justice. And uh, if it was committed, I don't know whether a sensible prosecutor would bring such a charge or not. In the case of Hillary Clinton, Uh, James Comey, the head of the FBI, took it upon himself in the course of the campaign uh, to uh, hold a press conference and to announce that he was not going to, that he had investigated uh, the use of her private server Mm -hmm. uh, and that he thought she had been uh, uh, neglectful, but that He was not going to bring charges because he said no prosecutor would bring charges based on this evidence. Right. He wasn't saying there's no crime here. Right. He's saying no prosecutor would bring charges. Uh, Muller didn't even reach that point. No, he didn't. He didn't say. He didn't say yes, I would bring charges. He didn't say no, I would not. Now, Now, one difference I started. One difference I started to say now between 1972 and today. In 1972, a lot, particularly in 1973, in the investigation by the Senate Watergate Committee, a lot of the heavy lifting in that investigation was done by Republicans.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Senator Howard Baker yes. is remembered by many people in the country for asking witnesses over and over again, What did President Nixon know? And, and when, when did he, he know it? it? <laughs> and you and I both remember that phrase. And Baker, uh, I don't know, Uh, Baker was, uh, I don't believe at that time he was the Republican leader in the Senate, but he was on his way to that position. He was a Republican leader in the Senate. And he, and he wasn't the only Republican to do so. He approached that hearing clearly in the frame of mind that if something like a cover-up of this So, Yes, who has said the evidence against the president arises to the point of impeachment? So there is one person who says that.
0: Let, Don, let me one. let me interrupt you right quick because you're making a, you're making a statement here that I, I have to put my lawyer hat on just for a second. That- yeah, you're a
1: lawyer talking to a notary. <laughs> like so.
0: Let me put my hat on for one second uh, as we as we uh, are talking about this. There is the possibility of prosecuting a crime uh, against the president for obstruction of justice. That's, that's one element, and we both have come to the conclusion that, uh, that Mueller did not say one way or the other if he would prosecute. He just said that the legal counsel opinion says uh, precludes it, but he didn't say if it wasn't there what he would do. But the other side of it is you moved quickly to where I was going to go. This is not – this is a different – once you head toward the impeachment, you're then out of the court system and you're into the Constitution and you're into the prerogative of Congress. And that's exactly where I want to end our conversation today because then we're now talking about truth. Where where are the Republicans, where are the Democrats, where are our leaders today in finding the truth? Because they have in the Constitution to determine whether high crimes and misdemeanors, and they can determine what that means, they can determine that in the House through articles of impeachment. And if they so do, there can be a trial in the Senate. And so that's a different remedy, and there are some people who believe that Robert Mueller went very far on his legal side, and he's a legal person. And when you mention Comey, Mueller did not want to be on the political side, as Comey appeared to be, by the middle of a campaign, saying one thing or the other about his prosecutorial authority. Mueller says, I'm telling you, I've given you what I have found. And now there may be other remedies, like an impeachment inquiry. And so there's a little bit of distinction here.
1: Well, there's absolutely a distinction yes, between sir. a criminal investigation and an impeachment. Absolutely. Again, I want to say to any listeners of this broadcast, this podcast, Dell is a lawyer, and I'm not. <laughs> and I'm not posing as a lawyer. I'm not posing as an expert. In fact, uh, we are not quite in the same place, because I think listening to you, that you've pretty well made yeah. up your mind that a crime was committed they didn't want to be looked into that, and that Congress ought of to move toward impeachment. Now
0: let me give you my view. Now let me give you my view, Don. since, yeah. since, you, since you've uh, said what you thought, I think, I can tell my listeners that I'd like to get to the truth. Uh, and I think the way you get to the truth is to have uh, witnesses come before Congress to explain what they know or don't know in relationship to what happened in the executive. Uh, and they have absolute authority to do that, uh, but at this point, uh, they uh, the House has not made that decision. But they have every right to do it uh, under the Constitution. They have every right to investigate and in their oversight. They have every, every right. I think uh, one judge has ruled differently on the tax returns. Now, uh, uh, but not. No, I'm sorry, not on the tax returns. Um, uh, but on the shifting of monies between the uh, uh, the military to build the wall, one judge says the president has that authority, and uh, I'm not so sure that's going to say that's going to stand uh, because Congress has the appropriations authority, and that's determines how money is being spent, how, how federal money should be spent. Uh, but uh, I no, I have not made up my mind. My concern is that I think uh, on things that are left. From that Mueller report needs to be examined, and that's what I think, and that's how I started in terms of finding the truth.
1: Well, uh, I have an absolutely extraordinary stance, given that I'm from washington d c right. uh, everybody else uh, everybody else I know in Washington. Uh, basically knows the answer to every question that comes up, <laughs> and even on even on this question, which is in some ways the preoccupying question of the day.
2: Yes, it is. I don't know. Yes, it is. I, uh,
1: but uh, I do think that in the case of Watergate, a lot of information came to light as a result of diligent reporting by the Washington Post and other news organizations. And that is what I hope will uh, come to pass in this case. There is, in fact, a lot we don't know. The president is taking measures to keep his to keep people who work for him from testifying before Congress. That's not a new thing. Right? President Nixon did the same thing, and so did President Obama, and so did many uh, many presidents between now and then. Bill Clinton and the Congress had many back-and-forths in cases that wound up in the impeachment of William J. Clinton. Mm -hmm. And he was not—he was impeached by the House and not convicted by the Senate, not close.
2: Correct.
1: Yeah. And uh, uh, if you knew all the evidence, if you knew what Michael Cohen would say, and you knew what uh, the White House Counsel Donald McGahn would say, and you knew what everybody else would say if they were called and sworn in as witnesses, uh, then would— you have a, in a case of an impeachable offense against the president. No, but Don, don't yeah,
0: but Don you, you, it, we're going to conclude here, but you are just going exactly where I'd like to go when you said if you had Don McGahn to testify, if you'd have Michael Coyne to testify, if you'd have uh, several others who were around the president uh, testifying publicly about what they know or what they don't know, uh, we might get further closer to the truth. Uh, so you are just where I am. I am just maybe a little more aggressive in that regard, but uh, and that's something we'll have to determine. Uh, we'll have to see where it sure. goes. We'll have to see how it plays out in terms of the uh, particularly in terms of the house. But I think the Mueller report is a foundation here, and um, I'd like to see some follow up.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, uh, there again, I pretend to no expertise in this matter. I absolutely haven't concluded. That uh, the president has, comp- uh, com- uh, has committed an impeachable offense. And I don't no, have I an opinion either. on whether the, I don't have an opinion on the question of whether the Democrats ought to push for impeachment as many of their most zealous advocates are suggesting they do, or whether they ought to hold back as Speaker Pelosi apparently thinks they should. Mm-hmm. Um, there was, you know, what I do know is that finding out some of that truth is. An important job of every news organization. Absolutely, in the and I would urge you and every uh, every body who cares to look closely at what you, the newspaper you read in the morning, or the broadcast you listen to in the morning, or wherever you get your news. Just look closely. Uh, how hard are they working to find out the truth? How good are their standards? Are they uh, going about burning the next things that are known, in the same way you think, are they, are they prejudiced against the president or for the president?
2: Uh, and we will see. Well, I'll, God. I'll tell you, I'll remind you of one thing, Dale, that you
1: know. In August 1974, Richard Nixon resigned. Mm-hmm. Well, he resigned because what came out on the White House tape said pretty damn clearly. He ordered his top aide to rein in the investigations of, uh, in the Watergate case. He told them everything Right. And when those facts came to light, Republicans who had been strong Nixon supporters to, uh, came down to the White House, saw the president and said, we're now going to vote to convict you. Right. Right. And rather than face a trial and a conviction, Nixon resigned. Uh, but in... Uh, in but we are way, way at an earlier stage than that. Has uh, what is the offense we're uh, we're investigating? It's obstruction of justice. What obstruction of justice? When did it take place? Mm-hmm. I want to know. I want to learn uh, a lot more. And I think I think the tough the, the that's that's a question to put. To the place you get your news in the morning,
0: as well as to the political leaders in the country. Thank you, Don. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna conclude because I think we're right where I'd like to be in terms of the value of the podcast, left, right, forward, business and political solutions. We've been talking to Don Graham, former publisher of the Washington Post, and what I think has come out of this discussion, Don is we had Watergate uh, issues facing our country that led all the way to the White House, and there was a resolution. I think we found the truth and we got to the truth. And we have similar situations that relates to the White House with the Mueller report and the interference in the 26 elections and uh, instances of possible obstruction of justice things that Mueller puts in the report that may lead to uh, um, uh, issues with President Trump. Uh, But I think what we have concluded here that we both need more information and we both need to get to the truth as voting citizens. And I think that's the value of this podcast, that we talked about history, we can learn from history. We talked about our Constitution. We talked about uh, special prosecutors and special counsels and what their role is. We talked about uh, attorneys general and what they do and don't do. We talked about possible uh, impeachable inquiries, and those decisions haven't been made yet. But I think the power of this podcast is to inform and to educate and to and I hope inspire our, our listeners uh, about these constitutional questions and about the role of a free press. Don, you have been extraordinarily candid and open, and I just want to thank you for this discussion today.
1: Gail, yeah,
0: well, thanks. For always a pleasure talking to you. Same here. Thank you,
1: Don. Bye-bye.
0: Bye-bye. We have been listening to Left Right Forward Business and Political Solutions, and we had the great honor of having a good friend and business person. Don Graham, former publisher of the Washington Post, whose family owned the Washington Post for a number of years, from his dad to his mother and to his uh, family operating the Post. We talked about the Watergate crisis and those issues con- uh, f- confronting our, countries and, uh, our country in the 70s, and the possible similarities by what may be happening with the special counsel, Mueller, and his report about what went on in the interference of Russians in the 2016 election and possible obstruction of justice issues uh, that, f- that flowed from that uh, interference. So these are all issues that, are, that I think are alive today and current. The constitutional questions about the standoff between our executive and legislative, the fact of whether or not we will see more evidence coming from the House of Representatives as they pursue their inquiries. Thank you so much for listening. I'm pleased that we had Don Graham with us today. I've learned a lot and I hope you have as well. Till next time, Godspeed.